Welcome to the Popecast, episode 14, our first episode of 2019. This week's Pope ascended to the throne with Rome under siege from a barbarian horde. Voted in the same day his predecessor died, he didn't even wait for the emperor's approval before getting straight to work battling the Saracen army. Described as a man who lived to perfection, the saying, pray as if everything depends on God, and work as if everything depends on you. At Pope number 103, it's the Pope who built the wall, St. Leo IV. Hey there, I'm Matthew Sewell, and this is the podcast about popes for people who love learning about history but aren't real excited about reading a dry, dusty history book. Each episode, we feature one of the 264 bishops of Rome, telling stories of good and bad popes alike, all in an effort to draw out the importance of the papacy, the gravity of the office of Peter, and the inestimable value that the Catholic Church has brought to Western civilization. Leo IV was born in Rome around the year 790 AD. He was educated from an early age at the Monastery of St. Martin, near St. Peter's Basilica, and when he reached adulthood, quickly caught the eye of Pope Gregory IV who was renowned for a towering intellect and a mild manner in his own right. Game recognized game, as the kids say. Under Gregory, Leo was made a subdeacon and served in the papal court. And then under Gregory's successor, and what turned out to be Leo's predecessor, Sergius II, Leo was made both a cardinal and a priest. Cardinals didn't have to be bishops back in those days, fun fact. And was put in charge of Rome's Basilica of Santi Quattro Coronati, or the Four Crowned Martyrs. By any account, Leo was the total package. His biographers, writing as it appears, in part while Leo was still alive, in fact, note that he was well known for being patient, humble, generous, a lover of justice, and an even-tempered ruler. A man, quote, in whose breast was the wisdom of the serpent and the simplicity of the dove, end quote. Leo's conduct while serving as pope, as you'll hear in a minute, lead us to see easily that his biographer wasn't puffing the man up, much less was the account flat-out false, as some biographies can easily become. In addition to his personal virtue, Leo was insanely energetic and courageous and, thanks to his bright mind and organizational skills, achieved more in one lifetime than a lesser man could accomplish in five. All that skill was put to use immediately, given that Leo was thrust into the chair of Peter on the very day that Sergius II died in April 847 AD. Rome was in bad shape thanks to devastating raids the year before at the hands of the Saracens, a Muslim army that had been pillaging the area for over two decades. Since multiple basilicas on the outskirts of Rome, not to mention old St. Peter's Basilica, were raided for the treasures by the Saracens, Leo's first order of business was actually several things simultaneously, a common trait, as we learn, of Leo's eight years in office. The first was repairing the damage done to all of Rome's churches and returning them to their former glory. More than we might imagine, it's said that Leo was, quote, grieved to the heart to see the damage done by the Saracens, so he made it his primary mission to make those churches more beautiful than they were before. Father Horace Mann writes that, quote, once again the shrine became resplendent with the precious metals. Once more was the basilica the possessor of splendid candelabra hangings and church furniture generally. Its silver gates were made even more beautiful than they were before. They had been robbed by the Saracen breed. The little basilica of St. Andrew, which adjoined the sacristy of St. Peter's, was provided with a campanile, a bell tower, and bells. But to make good all that had been devastated was a task far beyond the powers of a single man to accomplish. And the shrine of St. Peter 
never again attained to anything like its former glory, end quote. Sadly, as you just heard, the job was just too big for Leo, but at least the altar of St. Peter's was restored beyond its previous splendor. It received a new gold altar covering after its old one was stolen, and get this, the thing weighed 206 pounds and was studded with several precious gemstones to boot. Put simply, Leo intuited, as Dostoevsky would say a thousand years later, that beauty will save the world. Of course, Leo also knew that other more practical things sure helped to save the world too, and he also knew that no secular power, for that matter, would come to the church's aid of their own volition, which is why he both reached out to neighboring Christian kingdoms for help in confronting the Islamic raiders, and also began work on a structure that still stands to this day, a 40-foot-tall, 12-foot-thick wall, surrounding the Vatican Hill for the first time in history. It's now known to the world as the Leonine Wall, or the Leonine City, named for Leo himself. The wall, when finished, was comprised of 44 towers for bowmen, and was crowned with the massive round corner tower, the Tower of St. John, that still overlooks the Vatican Gardens today. Even better for Leo, when he set out to build the wall, undoubtedly an expensive venture, Emperor Lothair of the Frankish Kingdom eagerly sent funds collected from the imperial treasury as well as the surrounding kingdoms, interestingly enough, because the idea seems to have come from the emperor himself. Lothair was of the mind that the last thing that should happen to the church would be to fall into the hands of a pagan force, and as a result, the pope shouldn't hesitate at all to surround St. Peter's with a wall to protect itself. The wall was built between 848 and 852, but in the meantime, Leo, of course, had other affairs to attend to, despite his great attentiveness, as it's said, to the wall's construction. In 849, word reached Leo that a Saracen fleet was approaching the mouth of the Tiber River, which even to the most casual of geography nerds would know floats directly to the Eternal City, near Ostia on Italy's west coast. Leo quickly called on the great naval cities of Italy for help, Naples, Gaeta, and Amalfi, forming a league to sail out to clash with the marauders. The ensuing battle, known to history as the Battle of Ostia, was a bloodbath. For the good guys, thankfully. It actually almost reminds you of another episode of Combat at Sea seven centuries later, also organized and prayerfully aided by a saintly pope. Can anyone guess? When the papal fleet gathered at Ostia, Leo ventured to the coast and met them in person. The great father Alban Butler, writing about the occasion in his Butler's Lives of the Saints, recounts, quote, The pope met these troops at Ostia, gave them his blessing, and all the soldiers received the Holy Communion at his hands. After the Pope's departure, a bloody battle ensued, and the Saracens were all slain, taken, or dispersed. End quote. The story of the battle itself is truly remarkable. The Saracens soon appeared on the horizon, and battle, of course, ensued, and then suddenly, what was called a great wind in contemporary accounts, arose and separated the fleets, leading the Saracens to their swift doom. In fact, the Liber Pontificalis, a short, uh, a history book on the papacy that was written around that time, clearly has a contemporary writer living at the time of the, the battle, remembering the events of that day, saying clearly, quote, what man is not able to remember the wind? And the phrase, the wind, is actually capitalized. Sound familiar? It's almost like the Blessed Mother herself was practicing for the Battle of Lepanto, which decisively saved Christendom under St. Pius V in 1571, after a massively outmanned Holy League was aided by a surprisingly timely 180-degree wind shift to defeat the Muslim fleet. But 
We'll save the whole story for a later podcast. How's that sound? In any case, the Battle of Ostia has gone down in history as one of the most memorable events of the early Middle Ages, and in fact, was celebrated six and a half centuries later in a fresco painted by Raphael in the Vatican Palace, one of many, actually, that depict heroic scenes from the life of Leo IV. The only bummer of those is actually that the, the face of Leo is that of actually Leo X, that dunce of a pope who ushered in the Protestant Reformation, among many other things. But again, that's for another podcast. Speaking of Leo's other heroic and downright miraculous doings, there's a few worth mentioning here before we wrap things up for this week. On the temporal level, after the Battle of Ostia, Leo got to work helping to rebuild a bunch of other cities around Rome that had been sacked by the Saracens as well. After, of course, putting the Saracen captives to work finishing his wall. At least he didn't make them pay for it, am I right? But Leo had other more spiritual tricks up his sleeve too. In the Anglo-Saxon quarter of Rome, called Borgo, a great fire broke out at the very beginning of his papacy. The last thing a guy facing an impending army needs, right? Leo arrived when the fire was raging to assess the damages, and it's said to have stopped the advance of the fire simply by making the sign of the cross. He also apparently destroyed a giant snake simply with his prayers. Yes, I'm serious. Specifically one the Greeks called a basilisk, which infested the dark caverns of the Church of St. Lucy and was supposedly responsible for the deaths of many men. Leo, with all of the Roman clergy in tow, solemnly processed to the caverns on August 15th, which many Catholics will recognize as the Feast of the Assumption of the Virgin Mary. Singing hymns and carrying a statue or icon of Jesus, the Pope prayed that God would drive away the serpent. And, no joke, it was never seen or heard from again. Now, whether or not it was actually a snake or perhaps a band of robbers, as later accounts suggest, we'll never know. But, ain't no one messing with Mary when there's a snake around. As Leo neared his earthly end, he crowned Leo II, uh, no relation in the papal succession to uh, himself, as the new Holy Roman Emperor, and attended to various church affairs, none of which bore nearly the significance of his earlier papal years, aside from, of course, booting from the church a bishop named Anastasius, who would become an anti-pope, actually, in short order following Leo's death. Leo did, however, anoint a teenager who would become one of the great kings of England, Alfred the Great, to be specific, the only one of Britain's monarchs to, quote, receive the sacred unction in Rome at the hands of the Pope, end quote. It's said that not only did Leo anoint him as future king, but he stood as his godfather at the child's confirmation in Rome as well. Leo died on July 17, 855, and was buried in St. Peter's Basilica. His feast day is still celebrated on that very same day. As we wrap up this episode, here's a quote from a letter Leo himself wrote to the abbot of a monastery around the year 852, after hearing that many there were complaining about the use of Gregorian chant, which is still popular in many circles of Catholicism and Orthodoxy today, and dates back, in fact, to Pope St. Gregory the Great himself a couple centuries earlier. Leo had apparently taken an interest in music and was perhaps a musician himself when studying as a boy at St. Martin's Monastery in Rome and knew the great value of this type of liturgical music, as it was the norm at the time. Here's the letter from Leo. Quote, A quite incredible story has reached our ears, which, if it be true, must rather prejudice than do us honor. It is said that you have such an aversion to the sweet chant of St. Gregory and the system of singing and reading which he drew up and bequeathed to the church, that you are at odds not only with the bishop which is near to you, but almost with every other church in the West. 
And in fact, with all those who use the Latin tongue to pay to the king of heaven their tribute of praise. All these churches have received with such eagerness and such devoted affection the aforesaid tradition of Gregory, that although we have communicated the whole to them, they are so delighted that they leave us no peace with their inquiries about it thinking that there must be more of the same remaining with us. It was indeed the holy Pope Gregory, who both devoted his best energies to the salvation of souls, and who also with great labor and much musical skill composed this chant which we sing in the church and even elsewhere. It was his desire to rouse and touch the hearts of men so that by the sound of these highly elaborated strains, he might draw to church not only ecclesiastics and churchmen, but also those who were uneducated and hard to move. End quote. Now, Leo goes on to warn the abbot, actually, that continued refusal to follow the directives of Rome would leave him no choice but to declare them out of communion with the church. But I particularly like that last line. Anyone who listens intently to Gregorian chant, in my estimation, especially that that's unaccompanied and in an old, beautiful church, will understand what Leo means by its ability to, quote, draw to church those who are even uneducated or those otherwise hard to move. Beauty will save the world indeed. Anyway, thanks for listening. Okay, now before we wrap up this week, uh, we just launched a new Patreon page, which listeners to past podcasts will know about, patreon.com slash Matt Sewell, which I'll um, list all the details, details out here at the end. Uh, but one of the benefits for those giving uh, $2 per episode or more is to, con- uh, to contribute a question that I'll answer live on air. So Chris was our first patron. Uh, Chris submitted a great question that I hope I'm able to do justice to. Um, I'll likely have to give it a longer treatment in... Uh, episodes about Pius XI and Pius XII, respectively. But his question was, do you think that the Catholic Church, and particularly Popes Pius XI and Pius XII, who reigned uh, in the early to mid-20th century, did enough to combat fascism before and during World War II? Um, so obviously, I'm sure any person could you know, write a dissertation or multiple or books, as have obviously been written on this, this topic. But um, maybe just a few thoughts. So one, I think, yes, in their capacity, the, the short answer would be yes. I think they did plenty um, to combat it just because of the, um, by that time, obviously, students of papal history will know that the Rome had, their uh, temporal power, I guess you could call it, had vastly declined by then. Um, nations had risen up, and then in World War I, um, the papal states ceased to be uh, in existence. Vatican City became an officially sovereign nation. Um, they ceded all their territory to Italy and Mussolini and all this stuff. Uh, but I think in terms of what what the popes were able to do, kind of accepting this new uh, new role, I guess, as it were, as um, mainly a spiritual ruler who still is able to speak into temporal affairs, as both Pius XI and Pius XII knew, um, I think they did a great job. So, I mean, the, the various encyclicals that um, the two of them wrote, the actions of the two of them especially. I love Pius XII, the book Church of Spies. Um, which is about a bunch of them. I, I believe American declassified documents um, on Pius XII's role in the plot to kill Hitler is just simply fascinating. Yeah, but in any case, from my estimation, um, what we can see, I liked this. Uh, I mean, two of the most popular books on uh, this period that are mostly just kind of partisan anti-Catholic screeds, if I'm being perfectly honest. One is The Pope and Mussolini about Pius XI, and the other is Hitler's Pope about Pius XII. Um, a great review that I think sums it up perfectly um, on The Pope and Mussolini on Amazon, if anybody wants to go check it out, is 
Um, to get the truest picture of a man, read his own words. If you want to know who Hitler was, read Mein Kampf. If you want to really know who these popes were, read their encyclicals. And I think that is the perfect answer to this sort of thing. Um, so their actions, they defended the vulnerable. Um, they upheld the teaching of the church. They operated in really impossible uh, situations in the really the whole of their papacy, Pius XI, um, not just, was not just dealing with the problem of fascism, but was also dealing with the Great Depression was going on. And I mean, there was, you know, countless things throughout the world. So, um, yeah, so short answer, Chris, I hope that's a help. Um, I'll be sure to cover both Pius XI and Pius XII, both great popes, um, a couple favorites of mine um, in future Popecast episodes. But thank you again for being a patron. Uh, I also would like to thank John who recently became a patron at our new site, but I have yet to collect John's question from him. Um, I'll be collecting your question from you soon. Um, so look for that on a future episode. And then as we wrap up this week, uh, if you like what you hear, if you're a new listener, or an old listener, be sure to, uh, to rate, review, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to podcasts. We actually have, um, since our last recording, a new review to share. Uh, from D.A.D. Colvin, five stars. This is a terrific podcast for those interested in church history or anyone who loves stories about interesting people. Blessings. Thank you very much, D.A.D. Colvin. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, they're all D.A.D. is in caps. Otherwise, I would say Dad Colvin. But in any case, uh, leave a review, and I'll be sure to give you a shout-out of thanks and read that review on here. Also, like I mentioned, if you're enjoying the podcast and want to ensure that we can keep churning these out, visit patreon.com slash Sewell. That's Patreon dot com slash m-a-t-t-s-e-w-e-l-l so just for a buck or two an episode if um if you really like it you can get advanced access to each podcast episode so chris and john are getting this a day early uh plus access to other sweet patron only benefits like ask a question on the podcast um that's uh, again patreon.com slash matt sewell and then lastly if you just can't get enough for more great papal content check us out on instagram twitter and facebook at the podcast uh though still relatively new i'm already churning out daily papal quotes plus graphics and brief histories for each sainted pope on their traditional feast day. Leo the fourth will be coming up on July 17th later this year. And of course, mentions of new episodes and other podcast news. So give those a follow. So that's it for this week. As we exit, let us ask for the intercession of our sainted pontiff that we might also strive to live a life of heroic virtue and impossible energy and defend those who most need it. Pope St. Leo the fourth pray for us until next time.